This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening and welcome. My name is Rebecca Johnson and I'm the director of the Australian Museum Research Institute. I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Gadigal land. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders of that land past and present and also to the emerging Gadigal leaders. I'd also like to pay my respects to all those Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders in the room with us tonight. Science friends, thank you so much for joining us this evening for the launch of the 2018 Australian Museum Eureka Prizes. It's great to see so many of you here for what I'm sure will be a fantastic evening full of discussion around the theme for tonight's event, which I'm sure you've noted is Science for Humanity. There are a number of special guests in the room that I would like to acknowledge, and I have quite a few pages. Um, there are many of you that are special. In fact, all of you are special. <laughs> Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge my fellow scientific institution colleagues, Cameron Kerr, CEO and director of, the, of Taronga Zoo. I'd also like to acknowledge Kim Ellis, director and CEO of Centennial Park, Parklands and the Royal Botanic Gardens Trust. I'd also like to welcome Margaret Shepherd, President of the Science Teachers Association of New South Wales. Welcome to you. Uh, welcome to the trustees of the Australian Museum. I know there are several of you here. Also the trustees of the Australian Museum Foundation, trustees of the Lizard Island Reef Research Foundation, and also a special welcome to our former Australian Museum Director, Professor Frank Tolbert, and his wife Sue. Welcome to you both. It's always a delight to have you here. I'd also like to welcome my colleagues from the Australian Museum and our many partners and supporters. And there are many, many of you in the room. It's so excited to see a packed room of people. And um, particularly, I would like to acknowledge John Vassilo, who's the C CEO of Celestino Developments. Now, Celestino has come on board as our newest sponsor, and they have sponsored the Eureka Prize for promoting understanding of Australian science. This has always been one of our favourites, and we haven't had it for the last couple of years. Past winners include Emma Johnston, someone that you may have seen in the media a wee bit, um, and Lisa Harvey-Smith. So a wonderful prize to restart again this year. Thank you so much, Celestino, and also to all of our wonderful sponsors here in the room tonight. I'd also like to thank the judges who generously give up their time to judge the, our prizes uh, at their own, on their own time, I might say, although they do join us for a wonderful dinner in August. Um, I'd also like to welcome the Eureka Prize winners and finalists. And in fact, I believe we have about 20 Eureka Prize winners in the room with us tonight. They have a red star on their badge. And now it's my turn to embarrass you. If you have a red star on your badge, I would like you to put your hand up very high. And I would like everyone in the room to acknowledge your fantastic achievements. Thank, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And finally, I have our three brilliant panellists who are going to, who are actually the stars of our show tonight. We have Associate Professor Madhu Bazkaran. We have Dr. Amelia Enns. And we have Dr. Bryn Sobert. 
Um, and you might have noticed that I'm not Kim McKay. Um, <laughs> she's sitting very quietly there for now. Uh, Kim is our moderator extraordinaire, and, and she needs no introduction, but she is our director and CEO here at the Australian Museum. So welcome, all of you. So the theme for tonight is Science for Humanity. And this is a topic that's incredibly dear to our heart here at the Australian Museum Research Institute. Um, and while you might think of us as an institute full of millions of animals that are past their expiry date, in, in fact, some of them date back well over 150 years, we turn 191 this year, uh, we still pride ourselves very much on making a difference through our science every single day. And this is a great fit for our theme tonight. So in the past few months, you might have noticed a little project that we launched uh, in the citizen science space called Frog ID. In fact, Jodie Rowley, who I believe is here tonight, uh, she has basically not stopped doing media on, on Frog ID, which is an incredible citizen science project. Um, and when she's not doing media, she and her team are identifying frog calls. In fact, today we announced our 20,000th frog call that has been loaded in the last four months. So Jodie is not only a superstar scientist in her own right, but her ability to communicate science and the importance of citizens contributing to science is extraordinary and such a great fit for our theme. And in fact, uh, the, the, the concept of 40,000 people downloading our app and contributing data records in the last four months is something that is basically unprecedented for a field biologist. Um, those 20,000 records that have been identified to today represent 133 species of frogs in Australia. That's 55% of what we know we have. And they've found things like frogs that are 100 kilometres away from the, the known range previously. They've found frogs that are potentially, they're native, but they're now in a completely different environment to where they're, they're known from. And we all know the story of the noisy miner, everyone's favourite native bird they love to hate. In fact, I know we have Richard Major from the Australian Museum in the audience today. He, he's, he tried an experiment where he removed noisy miners from the environment to see what happened. They just come back. So, so they're really so. So understanding how our own native species change over time and in response to our impacts on the environment is incredible, and only possible through the mobilisation of all of the citizens across Australia. I'd also like to to thank Inspiring Australia and IBM for generously supporting that project. So many of you might have also heard of our incredible project with the Solomon Islands. Uh, there's a community there that we've been working with to, they're, they're big landholders, but they live off their land. Uh, they're, they're very traditional in their cultures and they're working towards conserving their biodiversity, which in, in the, their case actually involves them not eating that biodiversity because it's actually part of their landscape and how they live. Uh, that project is something that was inspired by Professor Tim Flannery, who used to work here at the Australian Museum. And it's, it's our friendly term for it is the rats and bats project. Because what we're doing in the Solomon Islands is we're looking for the giant rats and monkey-faced bats of the Solomon Islands. So Kim, I'm, I'm channeling Kim here. She, she always likes to tell a secret at, at every event. Uh, <laughs> just before Christmas, uh, we actually found the first evidence of the monkey-faced bat in the Solomon Islands ever. 
So this is really, really exciting and we're working towards understanding that and properly identifying it. Probably it's an entire new, entirely new species. What's really exciting about us being able to collaborate with that community is that we're providing them with the expertise that they need to understand their environment and to preserve their environment. We've seen hundreds and hundreds of hectares of land conserved under that project because they so deeply believe in, in conserving their own biodiversity. And, and we're, we're so proud to be partners on that project. Finally, this year we were all greeted with the incredible news of Professor, Professor Michelle Simmons being announced as Australian of the Year for 2018. Something that you might not know is that Professor Simmons is the fourth Australian Museum Eureka Prize winner to be announced as Australian of the Year. <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> just, just in case you were wondering, before her was Tim Flannery, Ian Fraser and Alan Mackie Sims. These are incredible scientists who, before they were recognised by all of Australia were recognised by the Australian Museum Eureka Prizes. So I, I think that's a great uh, reason to enter this year and, and there, there will be more on that later. Uh, so it's nearly time for me to introduce the fabulous Kim McKay, who is then going to introduce our panel for this evening. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks so much and welcome everyone. I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're gathered on tonight. Uh, it's wonderful to see you all, many Eureka Prize nominees and winners in the audience and lots of other great supporters and partners too. It's fantastic. Now, Rebecca said I always like to share a secret. What she didn't tell you is that one of them's about her. Um, <laughs> apart from Rebecca Johnson, which is no secret being named one of the superstars of STEM this year, uh, Rebecca, as part of that Solomon Islands project last year, actually trekked over 12 hours up to one of the most remote villages in the Malaita province of the Solomons. And to do that about halfway up, they said, well, now, Rebecca, you have to put on the traditional dress. Uh, it was pretty much being naked. Um, <laughs> but what Rebecca will do for science here at the museum, there are no bounds. I have seen the photographs. We don't share them with many people except for a fee. And um, I can tell you, the funniest part of this was, you know, imagine trekking all this way, um, very scantily clad, literally a little lap lap at the front and that was it. And uh, she got to the community and they were so excited to see her and a couple of hundred people had gathered and there was no lectern to hide behind. <laughs> and they asked her to give a speech. So Rebecca Johnson took one for the team, big time, and uh, addressed a couple of hundred people in her birthday suit. Well done, Rebecca. <laughs> now, uh, three people are with us tonight who are not in their birthday suit. I think they've put some of their best attire on for, for us to speak to us tonight. And I'm going to introduce each of them and then uh, and we can applaud because they are all extraordinary and outstanding individuals. The first uh, person I'd like to welcome down to uh, our seats tonight is Associate Professor Madhu Baskaran uh, from the School of Engineering at RMIT University. Welcome, Madhu. Now, Madhu co-leads the Functional Materials and Microsystems Research Group at RMIT. 
She's also the Associate Dean for Higher Degrees by Research at the School of Engineering. She has won several awards and fellowships for her research, including a competitive Australian Research Council postdoctoral fellowship and Australian Research Council DECTRA fellowship. She's also won a Victoria Fellowship and has been, na been named as one of the top 10 innovators under 35 for Asia by MIT Technology Review 2016. Wow. In 2016, she was recognised with the Eureka Prize for Outstanding Early Career Researcher and also named as Australia's Most Innovative Engineers by Engineers Australia. She's not a very high achiever at all. <laughs> Her research interests include functional oxide thin films, wearable technologies, and stretchable electronics. And boy, where that will take us, no one knows. Um, now interestingly, and I'm sure she won't mind me telling you this, Madhu's husband, Associate Professor Sharath Saram, who is also based at RMIT, won the 2016 3M Eureka Prize for Emerging Leader in Science. So he's trying to compete with you now, right? Is this it? Yeah. That's fantastic. Our second panellist tonight is Dr. Amelia Enns from the Faculty of Science and Engineering at Macquarie University. Amelia. Now, Amelia works in an area that is particularly relevant to the Australian Museum and an area that we're exploring more of. She is actively involved in conducting cross-cultural ecological research that informs local to national decision-making about Australia's natural and cultural resource management. She works in close collaboration with a number of Aboriginal ranger groups in Arnhem Land and in northern New South Wales to develop cross-cultural environmental monitoring techniques including for wetlands, biodiversity and biocultural values. The Nagurwi Stad Bla Country, which I have just butchered the pronunciation of, but in Pidgin it means we study the country research team she co-leads won the 27 Eureka Prize for Innovation in Citizen Science. She also lectures in environmental management at Macquarie University. And again, another little personal note here, Professor Chris French, who is the partner of Dr. Richard Major, who works here at the museum, was uh, Amelia's PhD supervisor, so we're keeping that in the family tonight. Welcome, Amelia. More applause. And our third panellist this evening is Dr. Bryn Sobot from the Frio2 Foundation. Welcome, Bryn. So Bryn completed his PhD in experimental particle physics in 2010 and received the Bragg Medal nomination for the best thesis from the University of Melbourne. Of course you did. He has successfully designed and executed experiments at the SSRL at Stanford, the SLS in Zurich, the Max Lab in Lund, and the Australian Synchrotron in Melbourne. He is a core member of the Frio2 Foundation, which was awarded the 27 Eureka Prize for Innovative Use of Technology for its siphon siphon concentrator that produces stores and delivers medical grade oxygen to critically ill newborn babies without needing a secure source of electricity, something of course that is in demand in developing countries all the time. 
So please again welcome our wonderful three panellists while I come over there. And uh, let me just make sure I'm on. I'm on. That's wonderful. So, of course, as you've heard tonight, for those of you I can't see behind the pole, I'm sorry about that. Um, for those of you who know about this, we're focusing on science for humanity tonight. And each of these three panellists is adapting their science for the greater good of the world in which we live, to benefit all of us, in fact. So I want to get to know them a little bit first in our discussion tonight. Now, I'm going to start with you, Amelia. You describe yourself as conducting cross-cultural ecological research. What does that mean? <clears throat> okay, cross-cultural ecology. Um, as you saw, some of the lovely bright faces of my Aboriginal colleagues in the video earlier um, is where we combine Aboriginal knowledge with Western science to create a better understanding of um, local environments. So what are you focusing on at the moment then? Uh, more of that, um, just on a bigger scale. Um, I work mainly in Arnhem Land with Aboriginal communities in the east of Arnhem Land, over 40,000 square kilometres, doing cross-cultural biodiversity surveys. Um, that's what we mainly like doing, running around catching animals with um, multiple generations of Aboriginal people, communities, elders, rangers, young people. We take the school out looking for animals and recording um, knowledge in Aboriginal languages as well as using scientific um, techniques and knowledge as well. So this nexus between science and culture is something that we're very focused on here at the Australian Museum right now. And a little plug, I, I want to say to everyone, if you haven't seen it yet, come back and on level one, visit our Gaddy exhibition. Gadigal is the name of the people, which means people of Gaddy. And Gaddy is actually the name of the grass tree that grew prolif in proliferation here in Sydney. It's uh, a protected plant. It grows in many of the national parks around Sydney now. It takes forever to grow. And it's a very special symbol of Sydney's Aboriginal people. So please pop upstairs to level one on a, a visit. That, this is how we get you to come back um, <laughs> and see the Gaddy exhibition because it does explore to a degree this nexus. And it's something that uh, the Aboriginal staff here at the museum are very interested in. So, what sorts of revelations are you coming across by doing this? Um, too many to mention um, in a couple of minutes. Um, for me, I guess the most amazing thing is learning about Aboriginal culture and um, language and knowledge about species. Um, I guess I didn't learn much about Aboriginal history when I was at school and going to Darwin um, to start my first postdoc, my eyes were just open to Aboriginal Australia and I loved it, I wanted to know more. And I think that more Australians need to know more, so that's why I really got into it. Um, yeah, I think Aboriginal people, they really enjoy sharing their knowledge. They're so proud of it, and we need to build their confidence in communicating about it as well. Con well, congratulations on the work you're doing and for your Eureka Prize last year. And we'll find out some more very soon. Now, Madhu, your ex area of expertise is, of course, wearable technology. And I'm sure a lot of you in the audience tonight may be uh, wearing your Apple watch. Rebecca, I was going to say you did, but you don't have it on tonight. You've gone old school on me. <laughs> Terrific. I should have checked that one first. Um, <laughs> is anyone in the audience wearing a Fitbit tonight? Is anyone? Oh, good. Some very healthy people. <laughs> it's okay. Continue drinking your wine. It's great. 
It should be red wine. It's much better for your heart, I believe. I know. But um, I know that your work seeks us to move all of us on beyond these basic applications that we've come to know. Could you tell us about the future that you're involved in um, with electronic skin patches that can monitor things like pollution in the air and the amount of UV we're exposed to and, and how this could potentially change healthcare? So, you know, when we started doing this, I think the idea behind it was, uh, can we make a phone which is unbreakable? And then we realized it's not as simple as just taking existing materials which make your phone and just putting it on a rubbery, stretchy platform. They are technically quite incompatible. And that's where we had to come up with a met method by which we can actually combine these very different materials together. And by way of doing that was when we kind of went into the wearable sensors type of place. And so far, what we've done is little patches which can sense the presence of UV, so which, which will tell you how much UV you're actually being exposed to, as well as the similar patches which can also sense uh, the presence of dangerous gas. Now, the gas you're detecting will change based on the oxide layer which you're actually using to detect, to detect that gas. And the third application, which is a little more futuristic, is probably more towards smart contact lenses. So uh, flat optics, where you hopefully you won't have bulky camera lenses and things like that. So that's really futuristic looking. So as you can see, a lot of my focus has been more external. So you know, it's about detecting external gases, the presence of UV, more external things. But a lot of research is happening elsewhere in the world. And my research could also go in the same direction in terms of applying these electronics more skin deep. So putting these on the body or within the body to detect things which are happening, you know, physiological changes. So when you say within the body, how do you do that? It could, it could take various forms. It could be a capsule which you swallow and uh, you pass out after a few days, you know, when it's done its job. Or it could be when you're actually having surgery, having something implanted inside your body for whatever reasons. Uh, now, that could be, again, something temporary. So there are people who are developing electronics which have, which after a few days, it's all basic, basically like a vitamin capsule or something much more, you know, which, which needs to be there for much longer. So the opportunity from is vast with this, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, because I was just thinking when you were speaking, I mean, one of the problems we have in Australia now because we've all been educated to wear sunscreen is a lot of older Australians are lacking in vitamin D. So a patch like this could tell us maybe if you're not getting enough vitamin D. Exactly. So uh, instead of having a colour-changing patch, which basically you know changes colour, which tells you, OK, you've had enough vitamin D, go inside, or you had too much UV, go inside, this is something which could track the amount of you know, UV you've had. And yes, like you're saying, long-term, you could trace it back and see if it ties back to vitamin D production. And could it work if you met somebody in a bar and to see if your chemistry matches? <laughs> she doesn't know the answer to that. You could make more money out of that, though, you know? You know, it's hilarious. Every time I put out a media release, I get these out-of-the-way out of questions like this, and that's what makes me think about my next work. So, yeah, it helps all this. That's good. Now, Bryn. Bryn, Bryn, Bryn. Wow. You're a physicist um, who's tackling head-on the number one killer of children worldwide, which I, I was so surprised to hear is pneumonia. Uh, can you tell us about how this project occurred? Because you sort of did a bit of a dog's leg left turn to get there, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so about the time I was finishing my PhD between um, the University of Melbourne and Zurich on uh, semiconductors, 
I sat in a presentation, actually no, it was a, a No Limit Symposium, so there were four um, medical doctors who presented problems they'd faced when working in developing countries. And I learnt two things that day. One, that pneumonia is the biggest killer, uh, biggest infectious killer of children in the world, more than AIDS, malaria and measles combined. And secondly, that oxygen is a proven life-saving medicine. So I was sort of sitting there thinking, wow, so, so these children are dying and the medicine's literally floating around them. So surely we can do better than that. So I was just starting a postdoc um, at the University of Melbourne. And so during, um, during the day, we had our day jobs and at night time and weekends, we started, I guess you'd first call it tinkering, um, with ways of concentrating oxygen without electricity. Because most of the, the children who die are in um, rural areas in low to middle income countries. And um, yeah, so progress was um, steady but slow. Um, fortuitously, I grew up on a farm uh, two, hours, two hours east of Melbourne in Gippsland, and so um, which backs onto a national forest. So we used mum and dad's as a, a place to build prototypes and test them on the weekends. And um, then we actually, after a colleague is an accelerator physicist, and so he, he would monopolise the whole Australian synchrotron to do his experiments. And so that, which Not a bad connection. Which meant that we had to work from like two in the morning till six in the morning when no one else wanted to work. And so um, after working one night, we got into the lab and there was a request for applications from the Saving Lives at Birth partners. So that um, USAID, Grand Challenges Canada, UK, Norway, Korean governments and the Gates Foundation, um, who recognised that women are 136 times more likely to die in labour in a developing countries, in a developing country, sorry. And so we, um, we put together a two-page two proposal um, in a few hours and sent it off and then went home to bed and forgot about it. And then they wrote back and said, we'd like to fly one of you to Washington for an interview. And we actually um, debated about taking the five grand and not going, just saying, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll just take, because we'd been spending our own money. If we needed a shifter, we had to pay for it and whatnot. Um, for, luckily, we didn't take that option. <laughs> um, so um, I guess obviously we, was, we were successful uh, that year, um, which really sped up um, the progress and um, enabled us to start working on it during the daytime. And then um, the, the actual uh, innovation is a, um, uh, an electricity-free oxygen concentrator. So the literature showed that um, pneumonia incident spikes during the rainy season. So we use the energy in flowing water to pass through a pipe um, to create a vacuum, and then we apply that vacuum to a clay-like material that the chemical engineers invented 50 or 60 years ago um, that can separate air into nitrogen and oxygen. Um, we throw away the nitrogen, give the, the oxygen to the sick child, keeps them alive. Um, but really importantly, that molecular sieve is not consumed in the process, so it just sits there um, keeping four babies alive. Wow. Congratulations. Mm. Which is a great segue back to our theme of science for humanity because you're really on the ground. And I think it's clear from listening to our three panellists tonight that uh, there's a motivator about changing human lives to better humanity through your science. And, you know, Bryn, I'll start with you because... The public don't normally think of scientists as humanitarians in this way. And we know certainly when we encounter medical science and we go to a hospital and we're awed by the machinery around us and the technology that's employed. 
but we sometimes forget the amount of hours and effort it's taken and also the entrepreneurial thinking that's gone into this, which obviously, you know, your mum and dad's farm provided a great original platform for. But when you're in the field, and, and perhaps you could tell us about some of those developing countries you have been to where you've seen um, your invention in action in this way. And what does it feel like? What, 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 is, what do you need to do to make it work there? Oh, there's a lot. So the mi first is the mindset is a battle sort of within our heads because we're um, nuclear physicists and so we're, we're used to working on $200 million facilities um, and now the budget per child per year in Mozambique I think is a few dollars. So the first challenge is the mindset. Um, the, I guess another challenge still in the head. Um, I've, I've got two young children now so it's very difficult going to the, the paediatric wards. Um, trying not to, trying to do what I'm there to do. And um, I've, I've forgotten your question. Can you, can you remind me, please? Well, no, you, you, it's okay. You sort of did answer it anyway, because what, what I'm interested in is that very question of taking yourself out of your comfort zone and working in the lab and, yeah. and going into a developing country and trying to deal with the complexities of yeah. that and the challenges that are presented. Yeah, okay, so uh, uh, the, the innovations are aimed at being sustainable. So the idea is if the innovations break, um, we can fix them there. But the, the, real, the real challenge for us is the data acquisition because we need that data um, to inform ourselves to, to, for fundraising in the future. Um, so coming up with data acquisition systems where if a part breaks, um, we can't just go down the road and buy it is really challenging. And probably the most frustrating is actually not a science or a technical problem. It's um, committees and boards um, that you get the impression... Oh, I've had a few of those. <laughs> um, that you, you get the impression that they're um, just trying to protect their backsides, not get more oxygen to more children. That's probably the, the single biggest frustration. So given that is your sole mission out there, get more oxygen to more children who need it, so is that something that you keep front of mind when you're in these different negotiations or when you encounter problems? Yeah, definitely. There's, there, there, it, it's been such a long journey. Like we're literally standing in mud in winter in Victoria in the farm and then a week later you're, you're dealing with IP lawyers and I, I prefer the mud actually. Yeah. Um, so there's a full... And, uh, and, and even this, I, I don't like public speaking, really. So You're doing okay at it, Oh, thank worry. you. Uh, well, <laughs> let me know at the end of the night, actually. But um, so it's a constant... Uh, a const, uh, I guess it's both the, the tiring and the... Well, it's good professionally to, to be pushed all the time. Um, but you, you're right, the... the you know, the Eureka Prize is a, a, is a perfect example of... Uh, um, getting caught up on stage was amazing... Um, it, it, like the, but, but it's getting children up, <laughs> oxygen up children's noses that we're doing it for. Yeah. So we actually fly out tomorrow morning to Uganda to start two clinical trials. So, wow. Sorry, so where are you going? To Western Uganda, so to a regional referral hospital to test out, um, to start a clinical trial for our low-pressure oxygen store. So that's aimed at where there's intermittent power. And then on to the Renzori Mountains near the Congo to demonstrate the electricity-free oxygen concentrator uh, in a clinic that services 60,000 people there. Wow. And, and what is the reaction of the local people to you? I mean, not necessarily in Uganda, but in other places that you've worked to date? Oh, um, 
It's generally positive. I mean, I, I travel a lot with medical doctors. We're, we're collaborating with with Harvard in um, in Barara at the moment, um, and so I, I guess I just feel I have a role a role to play w within the team. Um, so so it, it's positive. But I mean, the the, the healthcare workers is so overworked that um, there's not a lot of time for sort of platitudes and. No. And and all that. So, um, it, it so so far so good. Um, in in two weeks when we're back from the demonstration, that will be a really big step forward because we we need we, we want the, the the device to be sustainable. So if if our plane crashes on the way home, we want the device to keep working. So we're we're installing it with um, young local technicians, um, and yeah, we we really want it to the technology to um, enable local people to save local children, not not us flying in and taking phone calls and feeling good about ourselves. It's, yeah, ho hopefully it, it, it scales because of that. Bryn, I can't think of anyone I've ever met who's demonstrated more the power of science for humanity than what you're doing. Congratulations, it's phenomenal. So one of the questions I have for you, Amelia, is what direct benefits have you seen in the communities you're working with? I mean, we saw some comments from some of the local people from Arnhem Land who are obviously thrilled to be part of your project. But what are the, the other benefits that you've seen? Um, yeah, I guess I went to Arnhem Land as an ecologist, as an environmental scientist, and now I feel like I'm hardly even doing environmental <laughs> science, but really focusing so much more on social issues, cultural issues, education, psychological, political, economic issues. Um, so those are the things that we have to deal with and have become more and more important, um, especially um, with regard to youth again. Um, I guess I started working with the ranger groups in Arnhem Land, thinking that we could create some collaborative environmental monitoring, monitoring tools that would help them better understand their environments and how to manage them. Um, but increasingly realise that we need to focus on young people and get young people going to school, staying, to, staying in school, thinking about their health and their futures because they're the future you know, leaders and decision makers of those parts of Australia. And I guess I came to realise that um, you know, so much of Australia is being handed back to Aboriginal people. Um, currently around a third of Australia is legally owned by Aboriginal people. So a third of Australia is a, a massive part of the country, um, yet Australia's Aboriginal population is 3% of the total. So 3% of our population managing a third of our massive country is huge. And a lot of the um, Aboriginal people in remote places, they're not finishing school. Um, they can't read and write, even young people. Um, so I feel like that's the big um, issue that I needed to address. So I'm increasingly working with young people. And just last year, we had two people from Nooka community don't cry, this is where I start crying. <laughs> Actually coming to Macquarie Uni, which is just the most amazing thing, and giving young people in their community hope that they can go on to do something and do something for their, um, their future and their country. So, Ed? It's, it's really a different approach to science that then does meld into social science in that way, but mm. also using citizen science by having people participate mm. in the discovery is incredibly powerful. And Rebecca mentioned 
you know, the citizen science um, centre that we've started here at the museum. I'm a great believer in the power of individuals to change things. And uh, our Frog ID project just has taken off using technology. Do you use any technology up in Arnhem Land in your project? We sure project? do, yep. Kids love it. We need to use it. <laughs> um, that's one of the big hooks that we, we grab the kids. And we use tablets and videos and computers and YouTube, Facebook. I communicate. I never was on Facebook until I started working with all these young people and now it's just the phone's ringing all the time. <laughs> the kids contacting me. They're finding animals, families. Oh, you know, what's this little gecko? Blah, blah, blah. And starting up conversations. They've really engaged in the project and through that engagement become empowered, um, empowered to you know, stay at school, to talk to their elders, to find out cultural stories about different species and places from elders. So it's like reconnecting um, the generations and hopefully strengthening cultural knowledge out in remote parts of the country. So where do you go from <coughs> here with your projects? Yeah, so where are we going now? Um, <laughs> Well, we have a couple of kids at Macquarie Uni from Mookward Community, um, one very small community in Arnhem Land. Uh, but we would like to see more kids from remote Australia going to uni and they can't, for some reason, they're not going to Charles Darwin Uni, even though you might think that's the obvious choice. They, why aren't they going to, to Darwin, CDU? But it's too close to home for some of them. They just, they can't, they can't stay there, which is, yeah, quite ironic. But um, yeah, so they're actually making it in Sydney. So we'd like to see more kids come down, but also we're talking to people at Macquarie University about creating a satellite campus in Arnhem Land. So instead of kids coming down to Sydney, how about we take some lecturers up to Sydney and expose people to what university is, so they have a real understanding. Um, and then, yeah, just try and encourage people that way as well. I love what you're doing because it demonstrates how science has changed in its practical application instead of looking at these communities as objects of study actually people being integrated and learning from them. Mm. Um, and we have so much, as you said earlier, to learn from our local Indigenous people. They've been doing science a lot longer than we have. Mm -mm. And if we open our mind to it, uh, mm. we can discover all sorts of things. So mm. I think the study of that in parallel. I mentioned to you before, you know, back in 1948, the Australian Museum partnered with the Smithsonian and National Geographic to conduct an expedition into Arnhem Land, which was pretty uh, significant at the time. Mm. Not many people had been through there and certainly I know the museum here collected well over 4,000 different um, specimens, as different fauna, uh, flora was collected at the same time and also, of course, Aboriginal artefacts were collected too at that time. And I think what you're describing just show, demonstrates the entire shift that's happened in science from the way it's been approached working with Indigenous communities. Yeah, absolutely. If um, any scientists want to come out with me um, right up front, I usually give them a bit of a lecture about <laughs> um, how we can't just take things and even going in and, you know, collecting sort of, it might be, you know, with, with frogs, like a like bit of toe or something for genetic research. Um, we might sort of think that that's nothing, but for Aboriginal people, if that's their totem animal, they, they take it very seriously. Like, they do not want you to take that toe out of their country because, you know, it has a connection to their country, their family, their past, their future. Um, yeah, so there's a whole, this whole depth of knowledge that I had sort of no idea about before, but just so important. Yeah. And you hadn't actually worked with uh, Aboriginal people prior to this 
the whole experience, had you? No, no, not at all. <laughs> no, but yeah, after I did my PhD with Chris French, thanks Chris for helping me through all that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I really wanted to go and spread my wings. I went to Darwin and my eyes were open to Aboriginal Australia. I just yeah, really couldn't um, believe that I didn't know all that much about it, but just saw massive opportunities for us working together and... But I mean, it doesn't have to be rocket science, we're just sort of keeping it simple and learning from each other, respecting each other and learning together. Because at the end of the day, environmental decisions come from people. It doesn't matter how much science we know about that place. If the people, the landowners and the managers aren't on board, the science might, may never be um, implemented. So we need to work together to empower people to make better decisions. Absolutely. Well, it's just extraordinary work. I, I'm very keen to know a lot more about it and how the museum can help with that as well, thank you so much. A round of applause there for Amelia. Now, one of the uh, things that you told us about before is not just the wearable technology and patches. Can you tell us a little bit more about the lenses for your eyes and what that means? I think, uh, so it's a similar kind of technology, but I think it's, it's, it can take various forms and shapes, a smart contact lens. Uh, it could be as simple as, you know, something which could analyze your tears, because actually what people are finding is more than sweat. Tears actually have quite a lot of information about your body. So be it glucose levels, certain other, you know, parameters inside the body, tears could give you that information. So it could be as simple as, you know, using it as a tear sensor in some forms. My goodness. So, I mean, when you're working on developing these technologies. And you're thinking about the end user, I would imagine, and how it could change their life. I mean, did you have any idea that your engineering skills could be utilised in this way to change how people live and how they can enjoy their lives and live a, a better life? It's funny because when I did the entire research, my entire focus was just, you know, having oxide coatings and having them on a stretchable polymeric substrate. That's it. That was my entire focus. And then I, I did this, I published it, and usually when we publish something in our research group, we always put out a media release around it. Not so more because we, we've always had Austrian Research Council funding. So it's more of, you know, to tell taxpayers, this is what your money has actually been used mm. to fund. And also I, a bit of an education segment in some forms. And almost always as a result in industry or somebody coming back to me and saying, oh, but can you use this for this or use that for that? So now I'm a little more aware for sure about, you know, I'm doing this, but then I, I cannot even imagine what kind of applications this might have. So, yeah. Now, Madhu, did you come to Australia particularly to advance your engineering and scientific studies? So I came here in 2004, and that was to just to do a master's in microelectronic engineering. And my idea was to do a master's and then go back to India. But then I stayed on because at RMIT we have well, we had one of uh, we had clean rooms. Now clean rooms are literally what, as the name suggests, the rooms which are very very clean. So. Uh, <laughs> And they're clean because you need to be making really, really tiny devices in there. So contrary to the usual labs where you're wearing a lab coat because you're protecting yourself from what you're working with, this is the opposite. You're the contaminant. So you're protecting the lab from you. So, you know, you're wearing this full-length bunny suits and making devices, and that really, really interested me. And that's why I just stayed on to do a PhD and then stayed on and stayed on and stayed on. And I hope you're staying on and on. I hope so too. Yeah, great. <laughs> So, okay, so let's think big here. What, what's your goal? What do you, how do you want to impact humanity through your work? Is there something you're working on top secret now that you can tell us? 
I don't think anyone from my IP team is over here. But they, they really hit on me, you know, for, for things which I say and things like this. And they're like, oh my God, I gave away precious IP. But uh, I mean, like I said, you know, the possibilities are endless. And so to see any of that out there in, in real life would be, would be really, really nice. We've had these in the labs for so long to actually make, make that actually have the translation to get go from the lab out there into society. I know it'll take a while, but you know, anything is actually worthwhile. So how do you sort of create that, um, or don't you, does the line blur between science and technology or do you look at them separately? I'm an engineer, so you know, when I apply for all these science, uh, it's, they always told me it's easier for me for uh, a scientist to sell science to an engineer rather than the other way around for some reason. But you know, I, here I am, I, I always, I call myself a material scientist slash engineer. So I don't think I really see it as two separate things. For me, almost technology and science kind of go in a loop. There are a lot of things which we don't discover about fundamental science, which we now know only because technology has advanced that far. For instance, take for instance microscopes, you know, I mean, they, their magnification power is so much more now than it was say 20 or 30 years back. So it allows you to know much, much more about science. For me, it's a loop, you know, having fundamental science feeds you to be build better technology and that better technology kind of helps you understand fundamental science more. So I think Badu is just doing absolutely extraordinary and mind-blowing work. Thank you so much, Madhu, for sharing that. Now, Brynn, I've got a bit of a political question for you. And then uh, we'll have a, a little few more comments and then I'm going to open it to questions from the audience. So, Brynn, um, we're in an interesting place in Australia at the moment. Since the 1930s, we've always had a Minister for Science who was in Cabinet. Um, just now, for the second time in our history, we haven't. Uh, it's been relegated to a junior minister outside of the cabinet process. Our prime minister announced that at the end of last year. And the only time before that was during the Abbott government. So do you see this as a, a diminution of science in Australia and its status? Or do you think it's just a bump along the way? Um, so in 2016, we won our second Saving Lives at Birth uh, award. So it's in the... Um, the Ronald Reagan building next door to the White House. It's very um, American. Um, and um, so there were 12 winners that year. And uh, when I looked around at the other 11 people on stage, there were three other Australian groups. And I, I remember thinking, wow, that, that's amazing. And I later did the math, and um, it's equivalent to winning 78 gold medals in the, at the Olympics. And I, and I was up there thinking, wow, go Australia. And then I thought, well, while still on stage, I started to think, hang on a minute, maybe this is, uh, I mean, we, yes, we're doing great work. There are lots of reviews to get to that stage, but maybe it's more of a consequence or um, it indicates how far we have to go to get funding. Yeah. So, yeah, I do, I do think it is a major problem for science in Australia. Um, yeah. Um, I'm... I, I don't know the cause necessarily. I think... Um, that maybe we scientists over the years, I mean, we would probably rather be working in the lab right now. We, we've, um, we've undervalued the importance of communicating science and value back to the taxpayer. Um, what, that, that we actually just love working and we want to improve the world. And um, I think that it's, it's part of the consequence of that. And 
Uh, I don't think science wins votes. Uh, jobs and growth wins, grow wins, wins votes. And probably the most visible science at the moment, um, arguably, is climate, uh, the climate scientists. And that is seen by many to be in direct competition with economic um, growth. So, yeah, it's uh, they're dark times for science in Australia. It's not very good, is it? <laughs> it's not, no, it's not very positive. No. No, it's not. Not when you're doing such amazing work. You know, Amelia, when you won the Eureka Prize, what did it feel like? <clears throat> yeah, it was a huge shock. I yeah, literally felt like I jumped out of my skin. I've never felt like that before. It was crazy. It was awesome. Um, and just to be there with my three young Aboriginal colleagues was just, yeah, really emotional and really exciting for them. They were just blown out of their mind and it had um, ramifications back in the community. They all started, you know, coming to work. We have a project up there where kids, you know, come to work when they feel like it. But they were coming every day after that. They were so excited and proud <laughs> and, you know, talking about the award and they all want to come down to Sydney and, you know, do something with their lives. So it had a huge impact for us. It was really big. That's fantastic. And do you see that impact continuing? Yeah, in the yeah, definitely. Yeah. I hope that we get more students coming to uni and taking the education more seriously and that we can learn more from Aboriginal people as well. That's our dream is to have a two-way university. So we're learning from Indigenous elders and Aboriginal people learning from us as well. Now, Madhu, when uh, as a Eureka Prize winner, we all we love the word Eureka in Australia, that moment of discovery. I imagine Really, you don't have those moments too often that it's more just a long, hard slog, is it, to get the result? We actually kind of had one for this particular one because we just, you know, uh, I think one of our students, he was trying to put, when we actually started developing this entire process of trying to combine oxide materials with the stretchy contact lens type material, uh, he was trying to put on platinum thin films and he, you know, platinum generally does not stick to silicon. You always need to have some kind of an addition layer in between. And he kind of forgot to put the adhesion layer on. And he put on the platinum on silicon and then he entire, ended up spin coating this entire polymer layer and then peeling it off. And he realized the whole thing comes off beautifully. And that's what actually helped us build our entire transfer process because we realized as long as it's sitting on top of platinum, it comes off. Isn't that great? A mistake actually led to the better result. <laughs> I know. So I remember scolding him for it and then thinking, oh my God, like, you know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to be scolded by you. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much for, um, for, for sharing that with us and, and for all of your views. Now, I'm happy to uh, open up our wonderful panellists who just love public speaking so much. Um, <laughs> to you all for some questions and we've learned about three very diverse areas of study and achievement so I know we must have some good questions out there yes right up the back yeah uh, excellent well that's good I think, uh, you know, with these sensors, uh, for me, a lot of these are just novelty products. You know, sometimes even I, I develop a sensor and I'm thinking, who cares for this? But then you, you see, you know, industry jumping up and down for it sometimes. But, and yes, do you need all those sensors and do you need that large volume of data which is generating? Uh, seems to be the case. Obviously, seems to be yes. But, uh, so there are some people, there are people who are looking quite actively into understanding and 
imagining that you know privacy is something which you definitely want protected. And I'm looking at more environmental factors, but then when, as when you start tapping into the body and start collecting data about yourself, you definitely don't want people you know reading into that or hacking into it and things like that. There is definitely a lot of research going on into that. So for instance, the sensors which I make, I'm trying to use more of NFC technology, so more similar to the technology in your credit cards. So you can only interact, I mean, you all have credit cards, but you're not reading off each other's numbers. So obviously it's communicating at a wavelength or at a frequency where it doesn't interfere and it's not easy to hack into. And uh, there are other people out, out there, obviously, who are trying to see if there is, there are different other forms of communication you can use so that it's not that easy to hack into. But yes, there are definitely concerns and that's why there's so much research happening there too. Thank you. Another question? Hi, uh, Emily. Um, so I've always been gobsmacked by this sort of 60,000 plus years of continuous culture with the Aboriginal people, but I've always been um, always really confused about how they've managed to achieve that. These are the true masters of, of sustainability, like it's without peer in the history of humanity. Um, are you getting insights into how that's actually been achieved? Like insights into the, the like philosophy around sustainability? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, we can definitely learn something. Um, I guess people, I mean, I'd probably get slapped if I called them, um, yeah, nomads or hunter-gatherers, hunter but, um, you know, people moved around. They, you know, when they'd used one part of the land, they moved on to the next. They had full respect for um, all the different species and, you know, they didn't, with the yams, for example, didn't take the whole thing, left some for next year. I just think, yeah, that mindset and that simple sort of living, living with the land with respect and with your family is, is just definitely something that we can learn from. Yeah, like absolute respect and, yeah, I don't know what else I can say. We should all, all learn more and go to remote Australia and learn more about it. And, and not even just remote Australia. I mean, just here in Sydney, there's been some great revelations recently about absolutely. looking after the waterways and fishing practices and... Yeah, yeah, no, Aboriginal people everywhere. But, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Got to be careful it's being recorded. Let's make Scott run. There you go. Congratulations, all three of you. It was beautiful to just listen what you're working on. Um, my question is to Bryn. Bryn, you, you work, the recipients of your work is probably more in developing countries than in Australia. Though I understand your research is based here in Australia. Where's your funding coming from? Do you find your funding here or do you have to go to international bodies? Yeah, uh, yeah um, definitely international. And, um, and that's partly why the Eureka Prize meant so much to the team. Um, it's, it's the first recognition we've got in Australia. Um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're primarily funded through the Saving Lives at Birth Partners. Um, so, um, Canada, USAID, UK, Norwegian, Korean governments, and the Gates Foundation. Um, so, um, I guess the downside is we don't really have much, we don't have job security. We, we've, we've done very well winning these highly competitive grants, but if we miss them in a row, um, the whole, all of what we're doing is really put at risk. Um, and, and yes, the, the applicability to Australia is very limited. Um, the Solomon Islands, though, uh, the Pacific Rim, though, um, East Timor, Papua New Guinea, um, Solomon Islands have huge pneumonia load burdens. Um, but, but the technology might find application in Australia around aquaculture. So 
Uh, the problem with growing fish more quickly is, as the water warms up, is the amount of oxygen it holds. It holds drops, and so the, the fish grow more slowly and more likely to get sick and whatnot. So we're investigating um, applicability to aquaculture with the, with the hope that um, we can use that to cross-subsidise the medical stuff. So we can, we, that would be for profit to subsidise the medical stuff, which we, we can't see a way to um, make money out of. Yeah. Another question? Scientists are under a lot of pressure in all sorts of ways. So for each of you, what are uh, you know, maybe one or two things that you would change if you could about the way science is practised in Australia or in your field in particular? I think for me, as I'm trying to take my research from the lab out into the real world, what I'm finding is, you know, it's we, industry, business, university, they, they all operate in silos. There's no, I don't think I've ever had really, I mean, Australia's never had an electronics industry and that could be the, some of the reasons why, but I find it's quite hard for me to convince industry of the importance of research and, you know, to actually invest in something like this. And a lot of people obviously don't employ PhDs, so, for, you know, I, and with my other hat on as an associate in for higher degrees by research, it's sometimes hard to convince students, you know, you mean, you need to tell them you need to do a PhD because of this, but then there's no real industry jobs for in certain fields out here. That is something which definitely has to change. I mean, I think that value which we add by actually doing this research and for people to actually appreciate that it takes that long and that amount of research to actually get a good product out there, I think that's, that's something which definitely has to change. Um, the other thing I think which is well known is obviously the fact that this uh, career stability is definitely a problem for most of us. I mean, when we come out fresh from our PhDs, most of our uh, jobs are based on contracts. And uh, for women, needless to say, it's also a time when you know you, you take a break to have a family, you, you go have a career interruption also thrown into the mix. So too many things happening at the same time. So anything which you know creates a better, a more stable environment at that point in the career would definitely help a long way. Amelia? I think in our field of ecology, um, field work has been more and more restricted over time and I feel that, that is a massive shame. Um, you know, especially in a country like Australia, we need more young people to get out and see what Australia is all about, the diversity of environments and climates and different sort of interaction with people have with the environment. So I think the funding cuts, you know, restricting people to sort of field sites close to town in urban sort of regional areas, we're really missing a big part of Australia. And, and with that, I guess, um, not understanding what the, the threats are. So for example, like feral cats, um, you know, the cat was out of the bag for a long time before we even really realised the impact that it was having on small mammals. Um, so we really need to reconnect with all those parts of Australia. And I guess needless to say, um, I wish that there was more acknowledgement of Indigenous knowledge in our teaching of science from, of all ages. Bryn. Uh, so yeah, in, in short, um, job security. So um, too much of our, our little team's time is spent fundraising. We've probably spent 20, 25% of the time trying to, to bring in more funds to keep it going when we just want to do the work. It just feels really, um, it's frustrating because it slows it down. Um, so from a personal view, uh, my personal view, it would be job security, which I think Madhu said. Um, sort of looking further ahead, my, my, my my sense is that, so I, I went through the public health, the um, public education system from primary school right through high school, and so I, I feel uh, I, I owe 
basically my problem, problem solving skills have been honed and paid for by the Australian taxpayer. So I actually look forward to um, using the skills to try and improve the world. Um, I, I, I sense that the Australian education system is becoming less egalitarian. I think unfortunately it's more and more important um, how wealthy your parents are when you're born. And I fear that um, young people coming through, a young brilliant um, scientist, um, she might decide that she doesn't have that sense of obligation to improve the world. And also, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be critical. I, it's a reasonable um, view for, for this hypothetical young lady to come to. And secondly, even if she does want to improve the world, the, the, the debt that you've accumulated to be educated now, um, you might not have the capacity to, 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 to take on the, the um, career risks that a few of the young people in our team have done. So um, that really, really worries me because, yeah, so, so that worries me. And, um, it, it, and uh, um, going back to the job security, a friend of mine who's a much better physicist than I was, um, or am, um, went, has gone to work in finance. And I went to meet him for lunch in the city and he said the big difference is he knows if he turns up and does his job, he's got a job. So where, whereas um, in academia, you... That, that's not the case. If, if you don't win the grants, you're out and you're on your own. Sorry, I was really negative again, wasn't I? No, no, Bryn. <laughs> no, I, li I like it because I think it's really important that people understand that it's a struggle. It's a struggle to do good. You know, you've got your eye on the big game, but to get there, it's, you know, they say anything worth doing is a, a struggle, but boy, you're obviously feeling it. Um, all of you in terms of trying to achieve. So, you know, I wish I could wave my wand for you tonight and, and uh, the money would rain down because the work you're doing is so important, but just keep at it, yeah? So on that basis, uh, just to finish tonight, what advice, Brim, would you have for somebody who's thinking of entering the Eureka Prizes this year? Uh, so it, it's not enough to do good science. It's got to be seen. We need to show the taxpayer that we work hard and work on weekends. We don't get overtime and X, Y, Z. Um, so the Eureka Prize is, is probably the preeminent way of doing that. It, I mean, it's presented in a, a Logie-like format that, that grandparents and cousins understand. Um, but it, but if, even if it, I wouldn't stop at applying for and even winning a Eureka Prize... Um, at barbecues, on the plane, um, at the football. Com communicate to the people around you that why you're doing what you're doing. You actually want to improve the world. You're not there to line your, your own pockets. You actually want to improve the world. I think if, if, if perhaps more of Australia understood and accepted that, maybe science would start to win votes and our politicians would... It would, we, would we would have a minister in the cabinet and, you know, Bill Shorten would be boring a sad nauseam with, with a science and growth or something. I don't know what he would come up with. Let's hope he, we could encourage him to. And what about, from your point of view, Amelia, what, would you, what advice would you give to a Eureka Prize entrant this year? Oh, I guess, yeah, for citizen science, it's awesome to acknowledge all the amazing people that we work with and for all of us to get up on stage and share the limelight. Um, yeah, so I definitely encourage all people that work on citizen science projects to to give it a go because it's such an important part, I think, of um, an emerging part of Australian science, getting more people involved and empowered in um, understanding what's going on around us. 
Terrific. And what about you, Madhu? What would, advice would you give? I think you're looking, I'd, looking to apply, I would say go for it. But I think one thing which I did learn is, uh, as you said, you know, you learn how to communicate your science and you learn how to, instead of writing journal articles and things like that, you learn how to write it in a completely different style. And that's definitely a useful skill to have. Great. Well, there's some good advice. Is there anyone in the audience here who's going to enter the awards this year? Oh, don't let on. Don't share it. <laughs> Keep it secret. That's all right. Well, we know there are lots of entries already. I just want to say congratulations to the three of you. Thank you for sharing the evening with us and sharing your insights. You're amazing people. Thanks so much. And before I throw back to Rebecca, you can wonder, I just also want to thank our Eureka team here too, which I'm sure you were probably going to do. To Cara and Kate down the front here and uh, Jacinta too, thank you so much for all you do to make the Eureka Prizes so special. You can, now you know your purpose as well because it's reflected in these people here. So thank you so much. And um, I can think of no better reason of why you shouldn't be doing science to benefit humanity exemplified tonight. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you Rebecca, back to you. Thank you so much Kim. Uh, firstly Bryn, uh, a nuclear physicist who saves babies. That, that's pretty extraordinary. And Amelia, uh, an incredible scientist who has engaged Australia's first scientists who've been doing it for at least 60,000 years. Absolutely extraordinary. And um, I understand that you were recently offered a permanent job. Did I hear that? Yay! <laughs> so, so that's pretty exciting. And, and what you just described as mentoring and uh, psychology and all of those things, welcome to senior leadership. <laughs> and less science, that, that's senior leadership. Um, and and Madhu, um, extraordinary wearable technology and you're sitting next to the most entrepreneurial woman on the planet. I look forward to your new dating technology. <laughs> I look forward to that application and that collaborative project between you and our extraordinary CEO and director, Kim McKay. So please join me in thanking them again. Uh, so definitely better than Netflix. Um, I, I encourage you, if you're having an irritating moment in the next coming days and coming months, think of these guys. Think of... The, these guys can top up your energy when you think about what they do. That They have such an extraordinary impact through science um, and, and it is most definitely benefiting humanity so broadly. So, so thank you so much for your time. And I would also like to echo Kim's thoughts um, to thanking the Eureka team. Th those three people sitting there in the front row, the, these are the guys that put on the prizes. Um, they're a small but powerful team. <laughs> um, so, so thank you, Cara and Kate and Jacinta for your amazing, amazing leadership of putting on the Eureka Prizes every year and recognising, thank you, Bryn, call, calling them the Logies of Australian science. <laughs> so, so important and fun... 
Very Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we, we're, it's an international. We're international, aren't we? We're, we're not Sydney, we're not Melbourne, we're everywhere. Uh, so important facts to remember. The prizes are open for the next seven and a half weeks. So there's plenty of time to prepare your entries and nominations. Uh, all of the women scientists and uh, communicators out there, you guys are always underrepresented in nominations. So please, please, please make sure that you put in a nomination or put one in for your amazing colleagues. Uh, entries close at 7pm on Friday the 4th of May. And just to remind you, there are 16 prizes across the areas of research, innovation, leadership, science engagement and school science. And the total prize pool is $160,000, which to Logies is not very much, but to us that is huge. <laughs> There's a lot of money behind the Logies. So, but, but for us that is huge and to see the benefits that come out of winning a Eureka Prize and, and potentially we're looking at future Australians of the year right now. Um, it, uh, can I reinforce how important it is to put in an application because you might very well win. Um, again, I would like to thank our prize sponsors and supporters who make it possible. And I would like, like to thank all of you so much for coming along tonight and sharing our vision and passion for awarding Australian science. It's not over. You know the Australian Museum is well known for throwing great parties. So I would like now, I'd like to uh, invite you to join us back in the Long Gallery where we will continue our refreshments and nibbles. And if you can't stay, then please see our amazing team because they can give you a pass to come back later. We can't guarantee that that will be with refreshments and nibbles, but um, you can come back and see our amazing treasures gallery then. Uh, again, I look forward to catching up with many of you at the Eureka Prizes dinner in August. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Good evening. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.